BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm Sabrina Steerwall, and I'm Everyday Einstein, bringing you quick and dirty tips to help you make sense of science. I'm here with Dr. Carl Safina, an author who has won many awards, including an Orion Award and a MacArthur Genius Prize. He is also an endowed professor at Stony Brook University, where he serves as the co-chair for the steering committee of the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science, something that we're pretty big on around here at Everyday Einstein. Carl has generously agreed to be with us here today to discuss his most recent book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. This fascinating book follows a family of elephants in a national park in Kenya, a wolf pack in Yellowstone National Park, and a society of killer whales off the coast of Washington State. The book explores how these animals interact with each other and the emotions they experience, including joy, grief, love, and even empathy. Thank you for being here, Carl. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, first, I have to tell you that I absolutely loved your book. I have always been someone who treats her dogs like family members, and not just because they're cute, fuzzy, and kind of helpless, but because I feel real friendship there in our companionship. And so I appreciated very much the references you make to your own dogs, Chula and Jude, in the book. The funny thing is that for a long time, I did not consider dogs family members. It's only in the last few years that... Um, I've seen my dogs in a totally different way. And these, these two dogs that we have now, Chula and Jude, who you mentioned, they are family members and they are really true friends of ours. In your book, you draw parallels between the emotional experiences of animals and our own human emotions and human interactions. Personally, I think a lot these days about how we learn to be empathetic since I'm parenting a toddler and toddlers often behave like tiny little sociopaths. So can, can animals really feel empathy? Some animals can really feel empathy, but of course with all of these terms, we have to first say what we mean by the word. So empathy for purposes of this discussion in my book, empathy is the ability of your brain to match the mood of someone around you. So the oldest form of empathy is actually contagious fear. And you you see that in bird flocks. If, If one bird startles and alarms and takes off, the entire flock takes off. That is empathy. That's probably the oldest form of empathy. And then on a sliding scale of types of empathy, I call the next stage sympathy, which is a little bit more removed It's when you don't feel the same emotion, but you understand how it feels. So you might say, I'm sorry to hear that your great-grandmother passed away, and you're not grieving for that person because maybe you don't even know that person, but you understand that it is uh, an emotionally painful thing for your friend. And then if you are moved to act and do something, 
about your empathy and your sympathy, then I call that compassion. So I see empathy, sympathy, and compassion all on a sliding scale. And uh, certain animals have all of those things, and, and many other animals do not, but, um, but a lot do, more than you think. What is, say, the simplest animal that feels something on the scale of empathy or sympathy or compassion? Not entirely easy to know what the answer to that question is, but it is deeper than birds. It's certainly deeper than mammals because birds show it. Some birds show it well. And maybe even in some reptiles and some fish. Although that, you know, you could say, well, that's questionable. But clearly some birds show it and, um, and clearly some mammals do. Usually it's the ones that are highly social. You know, the ones that always live in groups and especially the ones where there's a structured group, where there's leaders and followers and individuals know who other individuals are. That's where you're most likely to see it. Sort of like how you gave the example in your book of your dogs playing together as a sign of empathy. They test out whether they want to play and then sort of take turns being submissive to the other, which is something I see in my dogs, which cracks me up because they have a huge weight size difference and yet they still take cues from each other. Yeah. Many of these things we see in dogs because dogs are about the only animals we ever really get to watch and live with and know fairly well. A right. lot of these things that happen in the wild, you simply don't see them, but that doesn't mean that they're not happening there. So with, with dogs, yes, a lot of the way dogs play is, is the same way that they would attack things. They chase, they catch, they bite, they wrestle. But when they're playing, they each understand that they're playing. They know that they're not going to bite hard. They know that they're not trying to cause any damage whatsoever. And they know it's a game. That's a form of being empathic, yes. So taking this to the next step, in your book, you advocate taking sort of a more scientific approach to studying the evolution of human consciousness and, the, and these sorts of emotions that we feel as they relate to those of animals. Is it true that we have inherited some of these feelings from other animals just as we've evolved to form our nervous system, our skeleton, and the other physical parts of our bodies? Yes. The thing about whether humans have the emotions of animals is um, the main thing is humans are animals. So first of all, we are all on a sliding scale. And secondly, we got just about everything about ourselves from something that preceded us. And that's, uh, that's how evolution works. It, it uses the parts that are in stock takes what's off the shelf that it can use, and then makes some little new tweak. So the idea that humans are the only animals that have emotions simply because humans have emotions is like, it would be like saying humans are the only animals who have skeletons because we have human skeletons. So there are tremendous similarities and broad overlaps and some differences. What is the biggest difference? What is something that, that does make us stand out if from this sliding scale? I think the biggest difference is a matter of degree, not a matter of kind. 
And in fact, the only emotions that I can think of that seem unique to human beings are self-loathing and sadism, where actually knowing in an empathic way that you are causing tremendous pain is a source of pleasure. I don't see those two things, self-loathing and sadism, in any other creatures. Well, um, we've I, picked some good ones. <laughs> I, yeah. Be proud, people. Um, I think that the biggest difference for us, we seem capable of vastly more complex language than perhaps any other creature, possibly with the exception of dolphins, but we also have hands. So even if dolphins are capable of conveying extremely complex thoughts, to one another, they are not capable of fiddling around with technology the way that we can with our with our primate hands. That's how I see the difference between humans and other animals. What about irrationality? Do other animals behave irrationally like we tend to do? No, that's actually another major difference that I see is that we often say that humans are the rational animal, but all other animals are total pragmatists. They only believe what there is evidence to believe. And you know, they are completely rational. We're the only ones who not only believe things that we can't see or test or, or feel, but we believe in those things so intently and, and so intensely that we often kill one another over, you know, religious beliefs or ideologies, uh, those kinds of things, about things that really are not really there. I see. If you'll allow me, I want to cycle back to your comment uh, earlier about how you didn't used to feel like your dogs were part of the family. Yeah. What was researching or your work uh, on this book, part of what led to your change of heart or mind? Yeah, it was part of it. So the reason that I wasn't really that interested in dogs is that I thought that, you know, you, you see a lot of dogs and you see that many of them are, they're either very obsequious with their owners or they're neurotic or they have all these um, behavioral issues and I thought dogs are so incredibly derived by domestication and breeding and bred for all these different behaviors. And we still treat them very harshly if they bite somebody. You know, they're sort of like caught in this vice of domestication. And, I, and the main thing is that I'm really interested in where we are in the world. And so I'm really interested in how non-human beings live which means out in nature. And I thought that dogs really couldn't tell us anything about any of those things because basically they were our boutique creations. And, and so they didn't really have a message from the wider world for us. That's what I thought. And then, oddly enough, a little uh, infant raccoon that was uh, emaciated and starving fell out of a tree at the edge of our backyard her mother had probably been killed by a car and she was, she was going to die. 
and we bottle raised this little raccoon. And now this raccoon, you know, they're not related closely to dogs. They're not canids. They are carnivores are in the same order, but they're not that close to dogs. And yet I was seeing this raccoon invite us to play with the exact same play bow that dogs use. I started to realize that actually a lot of what dogs have is genuine and a lot of it is ancient. It's not all so derived as I might have thought. And then while I was researching the book, I went to Yellowstone and I was watching wolves and uh, it struck me. I mean, I saw so many of the behaviors that we still see in dogs that wolves were showing to one another in their own families. And I started to realize that dogs are actually in many ways not too terribly derived, even though they look so different. Some, you know, many breeds look very different from each other. Many look different from wolves, but their basic tendencies, personalities, behavioral traits, their, their loyalty to their group is very ancient. It's not, that's not a dog thing. Dogs have that because dogs are domesticated wolves and wolves are extremely loyal to their families. Uh, I watched them playing around in the same sort of way, the same kind of crouched invitation to play, the wrestling, the wagging tails, all of that stuff I saw in wolves that, who, were, who were living you know, free, wild wolves. And uh, it occurred to me that a better way to understand dogs is that dogs have been bred basically to be wolf puppies that never get to grow up and stake their own claim in life where they're responsible for their own lives. I think that's a much more realistic way of seeing who and what dogs are. You know, I just softened up a lot with all these realizations. And I just realized that if your dog loves you and if your dog is domesticated, that doesn't mean it's not actually real love that the dog is perceiving and showing, that these things, in fact, are genuine. The other, one of the reasons that softened me to that was that I realized that humans are also, to a certain extent, self-domesticated. And yet, you know, what we're left with and what we have are these things that are real. That was my long journey toward just being fond of dogs and kind of liking them to feeling um, like they, they are, in fact, true members of the family. Well, I'm going to remember the next time I see my French bulldog doing the play bow in uh-huh. which he most closely resembles an ottoman. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to think of her as that, that little inner wolf <laughs> inside her. Well, uh, um, it, is, it is the inner wolf inside her that's doing that. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to talk with you today. Likewise, likewise. And to, yes, and to learn more about your book, Beyond Words. Interested readers can find out more about the book, including links to its many retailers at its dedicated website, beyond-words.net, where it is newly available in paperback. That's beyond-words.net. And until next time, this is Sabrina Steerwalt with Everyday Einstein's quick and dirty tips for helping you make sense of science. You can become a fan of Everyday Einstein on Facebook or follow me on Twitter, where I'm at QDTEinstein. If you have a question that you'd like to see on a future episode, send me an email at everydayeinstein at quickanddirtytips.com.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.